when you're at 25,000 annual household income on average, you are below 30% of area median income in most communities. So we are serving that extremely low income household on average. And, and that means that there's a gap in, in terms of the number of units that we need for that population, you know, that, that, that income group, probably double the portfolio that we have today in the country, right? We probably need to add five to seven million additional units on top of the five million that exist today. So production really is paramount. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview, recorded on March 20th, is a conversation with Ismael Guerrero, the CEO of the nation's largest nonprofit owner of affordable housing, Mercy Housing. This is the follow-up to my interview with Ismail's predecessor, Jane Graff, who was on the show back in June of 2018. April is Housing Affordability Month on Leading Voices, with Ismail talking on today's episode about Capital A Subsidized Affordable Housing, and a conversation coming in two weeks with Antonio Marquez from Comunidad, which is an owner of conventional workforce housing across the Sunbelt. We talk about what I will loosely term the housing crisis on the show all the time, and these two conversations drill into each of Ismail and Antonio's respective parts of the ecosystem. But in each conversation, we start with the broader topic of housing affordability before drilling down to the part of the market in which their business is focused. In today's conversation with Ismail, we do start broadly and then really geek down and get fairly precise on the different niches within the subsidized affordable housing business. Like with other complex problems, the housing affordability crisis is a bunch of different problems solved with multiple solutions that often get conflated, especially within the public discourse. One of my big takeaways from the conversation with Ismail is the Hobson's choice between investing our public dollars in much needed new construction, since we're so undersupplied, versus preserving the existing subsidized housing stock in which we already have invested so much of our taxpayer dollars. Both absolutely have to be done, but we're presented with limited public funds totally inadequate to address both sides of this issue. In the interview, we refer to Sister Lillian Murphy, who was at the helm of Mercy Housing almost from its inception for then 27 years. And during that period, she grew the organization from 250 homes and a staff of 20 to an organization housing 42,000 residents with 1,500 employees at the time of her retirement in 2017. Sister Lillian was someone I knew pretty well, and we worked together many years ago when I was at the Resolution Trust Corporation and Mercy was a contractor, and then for many years as a search professional, helping her build her senior management team through several growth transitions at Mercy. As a total outsider to the world of women religious, I had no idea what to expect in working with Sister Lillian. I like to mash up concepts, so here's some headline phrases that I think of with Sister Lillian. The Sisters of Mercy are 100% about social justice with an absolute commitment to serving the poor, both through housing and supporting their residents to enable better lives. Building an of-scale, sustainable, and economically viable, may I say profitable business, bringing a great smile, sense of humor, and glass of wine to the table, leading multiple mergers and acquisitions, and being a fair, sophisticated, and really tough CEO. 
Sister Lillian had to be all of those things to accomplish all that she did at Mercy Housing. And you'll hear much of the same leadership characteristic at both Jane Graff's and now Ismail's interview on Leading Voices. And now that I write it and say it, a mashup of that list might have started with this memory of Sister Lillian, but I think it's also universal among the best of the CEOs we've spoken with on Leading Voices. I will say that it's been an honor of one of the privileges of my career to have been Mercy's partner and advisor at TerraSearch and now at ZRG Partners. We are really lucky to get the work that we get to do. If you're enjoying the show and have not already, please subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and colleagues about the show and encourage them to listen in. If you have a few minutes, please rate us on your podcast app. And if you have comments or questions, guest suggestions, or if you want to get in touch relating to how ZRG might be able to help your firm in your talent needs, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Ismail. And then do listen in on the upcoming conversation with Antonio Marquez, and then share both conversations with your friends and colleagues as a deep dive into two facets of the housing affordability issue. Thanks for joining the show. Ismael Guerrero, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thanks so much for being on the show. This is the first of two episodes on housing affordability this month. Our conversation today about big A affordable housing terminology so all across the board here, and then in two weeks with Antonio Marquez from Comunidad talking about non-subsidized workforce housing. And you're the second CEO from Mercy Housing on the show since your predecessor, Jane Graff, was on the show back in June of 2018. Um, So we have a lot to talk about, the sector, Mercy Housing, about you, and context in this really ever-changing environment. Um, So let's jump right in and I'll let you introduce yourself. Hello, Matt, and thanks. It's great to be on the program with you. So I'm Ismael Guerrero, uh, as you introduced me. I'm the president and CEO of Mercy Housing, Inc., which is a national affordable housing developer with a nonprofit. And per the numbers, we're we're the largest uh, nonprofit owner, developer, manager in the country. And we are both in the housing business, obviously affordable housing development, but we are also, you know, just as deeply in the resident services, resident impact uh, business, I would say. Mm -hmm. And how many units and across what geographies or how many units, how many properties just to get a sense Mm -hmm. of scale? Yep, we're currently just under 24,000 units spread across 20 states. And and we're we're organized in an interesting way And I think it's a really effective way in that we have five regional offices around the country where we have local leadership, local advisory boards and and local development teams. Mm -hmm. And then but we're we're a national organization and we have corporate offices in Denver Mm -hmm. and oversee, you know, all the financing and guarantees and property management operations kind of from a, a central corporate office. And that makes us a unique structure that allows us to have that kind of that size of a footprint. Right. It's a centralized, decentralized model. What are the cities in which you have those those hubs, just to give a sense for our listeners? So we, we cover the entire West Coast out of our San Francisco office, which is the headquarters for the Mercy Housing California. Uh-huh. We have in Seattle the offices for the Mercy Housing Northwest, uh-huh. which currently is active in Washington, Oregon, and uh, Idaho. If you go across 
country. We were in Chicago, Mercy Housing Lakefront, um, where we manage developments and properties from Milwaukee, kind of through the Milwaukee, Chicago, down to Indianapolis corridor of the Great Lakes area. We have an office in Atlanta, which is the headquarters for Mercy Housing Southeast. Mm -hmm. And that covers primarily Georgia is where we're most active, but also in the Carolinas as well. And then Mercy Housing Mountain Plains is co-located here in Denver with us, with the corporate office. But the Mountain Plains region oversees development in Arizona, Colorado. We have properties in Nebraska and are looking at potential expansion in the Omaha market, mm -hmm. as well as uh, a property in Salt Lake City. And we're actively exploring growth in the Salt Lake City area, among other markets. Great, great thing. That's the, the heart of Mercy Housing. <laughs> it, it sure is. And just a disclosure, uh, Mercy Housing has been one of the longest term clients for my old firm, Terra Search Partners, and now ZRG. And we help recruit someone in each of those seats at one point in time or another. So we've yeah. had the opportunity to do a lot of work with you and with your predecessors. So it's really a delightful relationship. Yeah. It's important to press always with partners to that people understand, you know, not just the history and the legacy, but that organizational structure that is, uh, again, a little unique, but, you know, really important that all those pieces not only fit together, but work really well together. Right. Absolutely true. So before mm -hmm. we jump in and, and talk about the affordable housing space, there's headline news at the moment, which is bank failures all over the place. And banks have been partners in the affordable housing world in a huge way through the Community Reinvestment Act. And if that changes or goes away or is weakened, that would greatly impact your ability to raise capital. So any kind of talk about that a little bit and what you're doing over the last few weeks or how you look forward into that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's been you know really unfortunate to see that this kind of hopefully it's a road bump or a little maybe, a, you know, a, a speed bump on the way right. to continued recovery, because it certainly felt like the economy was managing to you know avoid that hard recession that people were predicting but now we have to wait and see so the challenge the impact to mercy housing mm -hmm. um, really plays out in in that the fact that we are because we're local um and we do a lot of work you know really with community partners mm -hmm. we were you know in, in different markets working closely with some of those regional banks that are um, having challenges immediately from Silicon Valley Bank, you know, the, the immediate one. And there were, we were already, you know, in the news as part of that story because we had a a, a deal that was closing on the day of wow. the the bank closure. So we've had to pivot, the, the team had to pivot and find a, a, a larger bank, a longtime partner. But, it, you know, instead of working with a regional partner bank, we're having to step up to the national banks that right now are, are you know, where there's a little more safe haven safe haven in terms of stability and restructure, re-underwrite the loan with a larger bank. But in other communities, you know, in, in West Coast and the Southeast, we do often come in and partner with those smaller regional banks because they are leaders in their community. They know the market and we're able to, you know, to leverage those relationships locally. So for us, we're, you know, we have to take a pause and look across our pipeline um, and the portfolio to see where we might have other exposure. Unfortunately, for Mercy Housing, it wasn't it wasn't anything of concern, but we are keeping our eye on that, you know, and, and those regional banks um, in particular that, you know, while we didn't have deposits there, they were good partners for construction financing 
um, some shorter term permanent financing and, and things like that. And, and we're having to, you know, take a pause on that and see how this, you know, plays out over the next couple of weeks and months. Right. And that's that's per individual bank. I will often also worry a little bit about the system in which the Community Reinvestment Act drives those local and regional and national banks to invest in their communities. And I also worry about the requirement for the GSEs to also invest in their communities. And every once in a while, you read the Wall Street Journal and you see something that points at that as the fault or that as one of the problems versus a solution. You're really right to point to the CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act, as a major bellwether here to what's going to, what the future might look like and challenges in the future. And as we sit here today, you know, we're still waiting for the, the community Community Reinvestment Act updates to right. be finalized. And there is concern that uh, depending on how that final language plays out, if there is indeed language in that CRA update that creates a disincentive for the banks to invest, to make equity investments through the low-income housing tax credit program, right. that we see another headwind appear uh, if pricing for those low-income housing tax credits from CRA-motivated banks were to drop. A lower price per equity, per tax credit equity means a bigger gap for our total our project budgets. So there's there's definitely macro level issues out there in the in the current uh, environment that we're having to keep our eye on that are a right. little bit out of our control. And so, you know, we're focused on, on right now with deal by deal, you know, making sure we're we're projecting increases, you know, into the future, underwriting them conservatively, knowing that, you know, the the near, you know, the next 12, 18 months, there's some uncertainty as we try to move projects from concept to closing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a context person, and the goal of leading voices in large respect is for people outside of this, each sector of the industry that we talk about on the show to understand what this sector means. And so I want to start with the biggest context and then keep drilling down till we get to Mercy Housing. And the biggest context story is that housing, for the first time in my career, I've said this so many times, is a front page issue. It's a front page issue for politicians. It's a front page issue in, in the newspapers, overall on housing. So if you could talk a little bit about where low-income housing fits into this overall thing that we hear about housing and all of the topics that are discussed, that would be helpful. There's a lot there for sure. But I do think it's it's interesting, right? Let's say at least in the last decade, you know, probably going back longer, getting more acute every year, the affordability of housing in our communities, whether you're urban, suburban, or rural, um, has really been a challenge. And, and in many ways, it's sort of that tale of two cities where for a while there, as people were leaving the suburbs, you know, moving back into the city, into the urban core, there was a real mismatch, right, between supply and demand of housing. And and that started, you know, people started seeing their home values increase, sell your home for way more than you bought it for, even in short term. And, and there was a big demand, you know, for in, you know, near urban areas and, and downtown areas. That's the, you know, that, that was a positive experience for folks, you know, but for many others, you know, on the flip side, where you were used to more affordable rents in your neighbor in certain neighborhoods, all of a sudden there was an influx of people who could afford higher rents moving into those same neighborhoods. 
and right the flip side of gentrification is displacement um and particularly involuntary displacement many of those neighborhoods became targets for investment you know because they had such upside potential and then at the same time we were seeing poverty in the suburbs you know increase at a higher rate than in the city um so even you know the, the poverty rates within suburban areas were also affecting homeowners now not just the lowest income not just people on fixed income but just everyday working class working folks who had jobs you know maybe worked for the school district maybe worked for the you know city city departments and they were seeing rent increases that were beyond you know certainly not keeping up with their wage increases you know in in those same areas so so all of a sudden you know you start seeing housing impacting more people we saw it, and you know I know the statistics are there about cost burden but you know also more people are paying more of their income for housing at the same time that other things like transportation cost of education healthcare are also rising and so now the squeeze in terms of being able to afford to live you know pay for your housing pay for your school pay for your transportation all of those were really putting a, a, a you know tight stranglehold on on home budgets uh, on household and home budgets. budgets meaning lots yeah. and lots of people not just low income people but people yeah. across the board up to you know middle income people housing is now a pain point and we still see you know the even from the great recession of 2008 mm-hmm. right production has i believe maybe gotten up to half of what it was before Great recession. So again, even as the economy was growing, as cities, you know, and suburbs, people continued to move there. So there was good growth. Yeah, it was a real disconnect between the the supply and demand. And when you have you know scarcity, that you know drives up the cost even more, right? Especially scarcity for the middle class, because that what we're about to talk about are low income people, and when it hits your own pocketbook and the popular pocketbook, then everyone starts caring and that makes it the front page issue. That's right. That's Not right. where poor people are at. So let's put subsidized housing in context of that. And I'm going to read a couple statistics and they're going to be not precise. I'm an imprecise mm-hmm. person. It's also hard to track this precisely, but let's play a few things here. First of all, below 30% of AMI is the poverty line. And the low-income housing tax credit program, which is the biggest production program for low-income housing these days, goes up to 60 and 80% of AMI. Um, About 11 million of the 44 million renters in the country are below the poverty line, which I found like an astounding number. So about a quarter of renters are below the poverty line. There's about 5 million subsidized rental units in the country from all the programs, public housing, Alphabet Soup, which we're going to talk about, low-income housing tax credit program, the old HUD programs, which means about a third to a half of people below the poverty line are served by housing programs, and the others live somewhere. I'm not sure where. Let's We'll talk about that. They don't, but the, those third who live in your properties, because you have subsidized properties, they have good housing. We want to expand this world because the rest could use some good housing too. So for that context, kind of comment on that and the population that you serve and the programs that you use. Sure. Well, you know, as I said, we're at our, so just to talk about Mercy Housing's portfolio in terms of where we sit in this. As I shared with 23,000, 24,000 units now, 
we have both subsidized housing and subsidized in terms of rent subsidies and subsidized through the low income housing tax credit program. But really, ninety nine percent of our of of that portfolio is income restricted, meaning it's subsidized, you know, one way or another, and we're able to offer very low rents. The average income of a family in a mercy housing community today is somewhere uh, around twenty-five thousand a year. So, mm-hmm. extremely low-income households, right? And and in and in terms of who we serve, we serve both families, we serve seniors, and we serve special needs populations, particularly people who've been chronically homeless in the past and are moving, you know, on their journey from being chronically homeless, um, living on the street, and now transitioning into permanent supportive housing with many wraparound services. So that that's kind of who we're serving. And to your point, you know, when you're at 25,000 annual household income on average, you are below 30% of area median income in most communities. So we are serving that extremely low income household on average. And and that means that there's a gap in in terms of the number of units that we need for that population, you know, that 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 income group probably double the portfolio that we have today in the country, right? We probably need to add 5 to 7 million additional units on top of the 5 million that exist today. So production really is paramount. If we're going to get to a point where the markets, there's a little more equilibrium, a little closer matching of the, the demand, the need and the supply. But in order to produce that supply, it does take federal programs, right? Whether it's the low income housing tax credit program or one of the HUD, you know, the 202 or 811 programs. And this is where the alphabet soup starts, right? We can do project-based vouchers and Section 8 you know, housing choice voucher projects. We can do FHA, you know, underwritten loans that are a little bit lower interest rates. Um, So we start cobbling together the ingredients that are available to us based on the communities that we're in, based on the target population we're trying to house, Mm -hmm. put that together. But at the end of the day, if we're going to double, you know, the, the, the number of units available out there, it's going to take you know, major commitment from Congress and who's ever in the White House. Yeah. And it's going to be a commitment from state governments, you know, which we're seeing, you know, happening in some places. Um, certainly in our markets here in Colorado, there was a major proposition that was approved, Proposition 123, mm-hmm. that created a lot of new funding for affordable housing here in Colorado. Uh, California, you know, and other states are making major state level investments in affordable housing. It, but it's that collaboration, that partnership between the federal funding, between state funding commitments. I need a local commitments that's going to, we're going to need in order to to make a dent in that, in that gap that's out there. So let's talk about that a little bit, because it's, it's really interesting. First of all, funding's coming above, above those income levels as well, because we need middle income dollars for middle income housing production. So there's some dollars going there. I'm just guessing that there's just no way there's a discussion to get to doubling the amount of subsidized housing that's out there from a production standpoint. It'll keep dribbling through in through the tax credit and other programs, which is wonderful. But a couple mm-hmm. questions about that. One, is this causing homelessness? Because one of the pain points in popular culture is definitely homelessness. So if we can blame homelessness on this, then we'll get more funding to kind of solve that. Question one, 
is there a link to homelessness here? And what do you think about that? And then we'll come to the preservation of existing stock that we've invested so much public dollars in. Yes, yes. So, uh, so obviously the answer is yes, right? There's a correlation. <laughs> okay, yes, with, yes, and yes. To anybody, right? That there's a correlation with higher housing costs, with less availability of affordable units, and an increase in homelessness. But you know, at the same time, I have to say um, that homelessness is not really just a housing problem, especially chronic homelessness, right? What we see is the people who become homeless, it's often a result of other issues as well, right? They're, they're the most vulnerable in the communities. They're often the ones with you know, severe or serious mental health issues. They've had early trauma in their life and has led them to sort of self-medicate with you know, with drugs and alcohol and, and you know, substance abuse disorders that they, they now carry. And so as housing costs and, and the cost of housing increases, especially in neighborhoods that, you know, have are, are where there's a lot of displacement happening. It's those folks who, ha- who are very vulnerable that often cannot navigate this new, you know, new reality. And when they their rents go up, they're often on fixed incomes. So they can't, they end up on the street. You know, naturally, they go back, you know, go back to the street or lose their housing um, and, and don't have the support systems around them um, and they end up on the streets. But we're also seeing, you know, if you go up the continuum a bit, people who are working, you know, but now having to live in their cars. Right. right. And we're seeing that proliferation of safe parking spaces where right. you park your car and, you know, and you're allowed to sleep there. Um, it's not just the Walmart parking lots anymore. And you're seeing cities having to deal with creating safe outdoor spaces for folks who may have a job, um, but, you know, can't afford to live in their communities. And so so there's a lot of you're seeing, you know, those kind of solutions, which are really, you know, short term, temporary solutions. It's not getting to the permanent you know, housing solution. Sad uh, but, solutions. But they it, work. It's like, yeah, but it's sort of like uh, trying to triage the, the situation that's most visible, you know, in on the streets or, you know, in the underpasses and other places. Right. Um, I think the important thing is that long-term commitment to invest <laughs> in production of more housing stock that's deeply affordable. Um, and, and I know, you know, we've touched on the middle income, the working you know, the, the missing middle, as many folks talk about, which is a reality of a very real situation, especially in the higher cost housing cities where housing for the middle uh, middle income households and families and individuals likewise is lacking. And, you know, and, and that's a real need for, for the workforce, you know, for mm-hmm. hospitals and school districts and cities, municipal uh, employers, you know, their employees who are low middle income are likewise being squeezed out of this, this housing market. Right. It's the housing shortage. Now, the statistic yeah. I heard last week was that parking lot thing, which is like a third or a quarter of the homeless people, this was in Los Angeles, have a car so that if they can park their car safely at night, that it doesn't solve the problem, but solves tonight. It's a big right. deal. And I think it's always useful to distinguish when you're talking about homelessness, the, those two characteristics or two types, which mm-hmm. is episodic homelessness right. and homelessness because to your point episodic homelessness means you lost your job you your rent doubled and you can't afford it you know you're you, you're somebody in the family had a major health crisis um that 
that drained your savings and your income and it could have, you know, somebody can't work anymore. So those episodic homeless situations, we're finding that it's so important to do the rapid rehousing, rapid intervention. You know, it costs less to keep somebody housed than to let them become homeless and then deal with all the trauma that comes with homelessness, which is immediate and long-term. So the rapid rehousing, the quick interventions, you know, whether it's rent subsidies like was happening during COVID um, to keep people housed is is a really strong, important intervention. When you go to the chronically homeless, which is not the majority, but a a very real and, and growing part of the homeless community, now you really need that how what what's been proven to work more than anything else is the housing first model which is you have to create stable a stable place for to move people into so that then you can bring services and case management you know and other interventions to stabilize them keep them stably housed but they may have such you know issues that need continuous care and then i'll just add i can expand on this a little more because what we're seeing at mercy housing is that those families and individuals who are maybe not homeless but have extremely low incomes are working the trauma and the behavioral you know mental health issues and the, the chronic health conditions that they're dealing with you know we're seeing families really need you know support and services and the right amenities but it all starts with having a stable place to call home first without stable housing many of the social programs, the interventions, uh, the social services that we're trying to deliver Mm -hmm. to those families just don't take hold if they're having to move three or four times a year. You know, the kids are going from one school to another to another in the same school year, or you're, you're dropping in and out of being homeless, living in your car, so then finally getting an apartment, but then the rent gets increased and you lose it. So we're learning the importance of housing stability, mm-hmm. not just for people who've been who have chronic issues or, and concerns who've been chronically homeless, but really for for many families and, and individuals who are in that very low income bracket um, and just have so many other barriers and challenges in their life right. um, that that there's just an understanding now without housing stability, much of those other improvements are almost impossible to happen in your in your the quality of your life and i know you're working on this because i i make the assumption that we as a society pay for it one way or the other in cold dollars (laughs) just to (laughs) think of money but also if you think of those kids and the cost that those kids will be to our society if they don't become more functionalized through housing first then that cost to our society is in real dollars, I think a whole lot more expensive than increasing the supply of subsidized housing. There is no doubt in my mind that that is an absolute true statement, that more investment today in housing in housing production and, and housing preservation is critical. Yeah. And, and it is a long-term, it, it's the return on that socially, you know, in a, from a humanity standpoint is just incalculable. Yeah. We have to show the return in a dollar standpoint. For, forget long-term thinking, it doesn't work for our politics. But if we say, hey, you save $2 to spend $1, it might work. Okay, let's keep going. And we, mm-hmm. before we had the conversation today, we were talking a little bit about the competition for dollars within the tax credit program between new production, which we've been talking about the whole time here, and then preserving those properties that need reinvestment at year 15, 20, or whatever it is. 
can we do both and can we fund both? And it seems to me that it's a whole lot cheaper to fund preserving an existing unit than it is building a new one, although we need both. I have to say that the preservation of the housing, the affordable housing we have already built, we have already invested in, and now we it needs, like any of our homes, right? needs a, a, a new roof. It needs right. new paint. It needs work around the interior and the exterior. Um, we have to preserve that housing that we've already built and already invested in. It's getting harder uh, because we're competing sort of for the same resources, those that we're trying to use to produce new housing. So, you know, production of new housing is high priority for mm -hmm. all the reasons we already talked about. And oftentimes people assume that if it's already there, you don't have to continue to invest in it. And so preservation of that existing affordable housing portfolio does not get the attention it deserves. And, and what we're seeing is states who make the, you know, prioritize the allocation of the low income housing tax credits, uh, you know, just as one tool, are often prioritizing production over preservation. So when we, we have one project that's, you know, is there to, uh, you know, reinvest in an existing property and another project that's proposing to build 100 new units, the production is going to win over the preservation in today's kind of where we stand today. Um, and I think that from a policy perspective needs to change. Part of that change needs means not to continue to slice the same pie, you know, in, in more slices, but how do we grow the pie? Yep. And, you know, you, you talked about the alphabet soup of, of HUD funding and federal programs. One of the other, I think, simple solutions, but it's a high heavy lift from uh, where the politics are of it are today is I think we need to really expand the housing choice voucher program significantly. Personally, I, you know, I advocate for uh, universal vouchers for everybody, you know, who's under 50% of area median income, 50% AMI, mm -hmm. because then you create stability at the household level there. Um, if everybody who needed a voucher was actually able to access one. Mm -hmm. And then those of us who own properties and want to serve those people, uh, those households, we're able to get a fair market rent for that unit, which gives us more cash flow than we need to find other, you know, other solutions like a refinancing of the property, as opposed to having to compete for the low-income housing tax credits. Um, if we had better cash flow at these properties, then then it would be, there'd be a little more self-sustaining and self-sufficient in terms of that future redevelopment or future recapitalization. Predictability of income, yeah. When you're serving extremely low-income families like Mercy Housing does, those properties just by design don't cash flow very much because we're, you know, of who we're, we're targeting. Mm -hmm. and plus, we want to add services to the mix, which comes out of the, you know, cash flows. So there's just nothing, you can't squeeze any more out of that formula to then also find ways to refinance and recapitalize your property. Right. And increasing the voucher, if you got to everyone, because we talked before about it, only a third or so of people who were very low income, there's only units for about a third of them. So therefore, if they had a voucher, they could then go in better go into the private market. That's right. For the rest of them, they could afford housing. Um, let's mm -hmm. One thing you mentioned before we talked as well, because you've been in the public housing business mm -hmm. and you drew a parallel between the disinvestment in public housing and then the, the drop, the, the failure of public housing in some places across the country. And I want to think of three kinds of owners of subsidized housing being for-profits, non-profits, and public housing. Comments about 
how public housing failed by not allowing that reinvestment. And therefore, yep. they're like, it, again, in the country, it turns out to be they're the villains, right? You put them on TV shows, you go, oh, my God, public housing. But it's not right. Yes, I think that's an important point. Um, so, yes, as you, you mentioned, for 13 years, I ran the Denver Housing Authority. So I got a, a front row seat. Right. To, you know, what was, and, and I was new to public housing, new to the Housing Choice Voucher Program when I came into that position. But I learned a lot, you know, about what, about how that sector, the public housing sector works. And it was, it's incredibly challenging reality. To your point, if you go back to the early years of public housing, 50s and in the 60s, when it was really often workforce housing, right? For shipbuilders, for factory workers, for, you know, New York City, the whole city, you know, uh, many people live in, you know, grew up in public housing because right. it was considered, you know, safe and, and quality housing. But in the 70s and 80s, there was significant disinvestment from through HUD and Congress, really Congress that creates the HUD budget in the capital available to housing authorities to maintain and continue to reinvest in that public housing portfolio. And so what you saw through the 80s and 90s was what people, you know, I think today often still stereotype as public housing, you know, or the projects, quote unquote, which was blighted, isolated and disinvested, concentrated poverty in communities that then created all kinds of social dynamics and social ills, right, because of that mm-hmm. disinvestment and that living in that state. And the the outcome was huge investments, un, not sufficient yet, but having to do huge investments through the Hope Six programs and Choice Neighborhoods Initiative to really, uh, uh, the only way to undo it that they, they, they had gotten so bad was to demolish that old public housing stock. And so you saw the role of housing authorities starting to shift to be not just administrators of public housing and vouchers, but actually become active developers um, because they had to find ways to transform that that old housing portfolio. The outcome, though, was some of those public housing units were lost in that in those transitions right. in order to serve others. And and so you know I make the corollary that what I see happening today with the low income housing tax credit portfolio, which was again you know we've made major federal public investments in that low-income housing tax credit portfolio. But because of the scarcity and the lack of prioritization of preservation of that existing portfolio, housing tax credits, uh, tax credit properties, we're going to start seeing that portfolio age um, and start, you know, hitting the same, having the same high capital needs as the public housing portfolio does. And I just don't think it has to be that way, right? I, I think we need to really create a preservation tax credit or you know, target some of those low-income housing tax credits to preserve that existing portfolio and increase the rent subsidies for those very low-income households that live in those communities so that the owners and operators, nonprofits and for-profits can reinvest appropriately in that portfolio. If we don't, we're crazy. I mean, just the, the the ripple effect cost of that is beyond imagination. I'm I'm my favorite TV show is The Wired, kind of like and but you think about The Wire and you go, oh my God, here we let's now put that on top of affordable housing, and have the nonprofits be the public housing agencies and having the for profits own this stuff be that without reinvesting in it, it's it's just nuts. That's right, and, and as you said earlier, just that point right of. Right, only like one in four people who are eligible 
for housing choice vouchers or for a low-income housing tax credit unit or a HUD subsidized unit are, you know, there's only only one in four gets wins the lottery, essentially, you know, it gets selected and, and is stably housed, mm-hmm. right? And we see the positive outcomes that come from that stability, you know, having that affordable subsidized unit, especially right. for those very low-income households. And so that that means is the other three quarters are the ones who you read about getting constantly evicted, right? Because their rents go up and they can't sustain. Once they have a bad mark, credit mark or one eviction, they spiral right. or they become chronically homeless or, or so forth. So, you know, the, the folks who are who are fortunate to find um, and get into, you know, get through the wait list process and we're able to build new units in their community um, and we can move people in. Um, those folks have great outcomes compared to the folks who are on that spiral of evictions and homelessness and and so forth. Totally true. So I want to put two concepts together, and then we're going to talk about mercy housing in a few minutes. We talked about three kinds of owners a minute ago, for-profits who are becoming big investors or have long been big investors in tax credits and subsidized housing, non-profits, and then um, public housing authorities. And we think of the public housing authorities as the poorest stewards of these properties, but I don't think that's true. So I want to think about kind of the motivations and the dynamics and capabilities of each of the three kinds of owners. But I also want to talk about concentration of poverty and mixed income housing versus neighborhoods that are dominated by subsidized housing. What And is that mm-hmm. the problem? And is that the problem that public housing agencies wound up having in the way that we're thinking about it? Or is it that's a bad ownership type because government bureaucrats don't know how to own housing? That is a question for probably a master's level lecture. We <laughs> got two on, minutes. Go for it. Just on that exactly, right? <laughs> so, you know, so I, I would say that what we saw in the public housing uh, sector is, as I shared, I mentioned earlier, was when you have high concentrations of uh, disinvestment and poverty, um, it, it creates social dynamics that are a real drag on the local economy, the neighborhood economy, right? Um, stores and businesses go out of business. Um, if there's high crime, that's not conducive. So, so the housing authorities realized they had to become community builders, right? That was certainly my role and our role at the Denver Housing Authority. It wasn't sufficient in those disinvested neighborhoods just to build new housing. The housing units were necessary but not sufficient if you didn't also find ways to bring in, to help improve the schools or bring in a charter school. So housing authorities particularly continue to really see themselves, at least the ones that are progressive and really being positive, impactful, they see themselves as city builders and having to partner with their with cities and counties to do more than just replace housing units. They really have to figure out ways to invest, create investment in those neighborhoods that historically had been disinvested. Mm-hmm. We're also, you know, there's also the, the movement, rightly so, to move, create more housing in neighborhoods of high opportunity. Mm-hmm. So don't forget about, but don't just focus on the, the, the low-income disinvested neighborhoods historically. We have to commit to them. But there should be opportunities for housing in neighborhoods of opportunity where there are good schools and yep. good jobs, 
and access to healthy food. So it's a balance. We definitely have to push both, you know, through zoning and land use and advocacy, but it's not an either or. It's a both and in terms of where we build more affordable housing and investment. And then, you know, I think the nonprofits have a unique role to play as well compared to maybe some of the for-profit developers that are out there, right? The nonprofits are always often the ones like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're in communities and communities need specific solutions to, you know, certain situations or conditions in that locality. It's more being creative and being part of the solution of what's needed in that particular community. That's often can be smaller units, more targeted populations, right. targeted services. So, you know, they, that ecosystem has to work. All of those elements, the the for-profit large developers, the, the nonprofits that are doing really good work, some of the harder projects, certainly the lower income households, and the public housing authorities that are out there really need to be working together to have make sure that there's a that ecosystem is solid and healthy across the board. Cool. So I think that's going to bring us to the ecosystem of your business. But again, let me set some more context for this. So I'm going to go to statistics again, having read through mm-hmm. the affordable housing finance today, top 50 owners of affordable housing. And it turns out Mercy's number seven on that list with about 24,000 units. The six owners above Mercy are all for profits. And the top three, Michael, Starwood and Dominium, have 37,000 units to 47,000 units apiece. And I'm thinking about Starwood, and we're doing work with Blackstone right now, which is increasing a portfolio, and what that business model looks like as stewards of this housing that we as taxpayers have invested a lot of money in. And then also, once I looked at that, I also looked at the average size of the property owned by the top three nonprofits versus the top five for-profits. The average unit size of a property for the for-profits is 153 units, and the average property size for the three big nonprofit unit owners is 56 units per property. Different profitability, if that's the right word, model in each of those business models. So kind of help us think about what that looks like for you, and then also the for-profits as stewards of the same business that you're stewards of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, those are great statistics to ponder over. (laughs) I do think there's no question that the numbers do matter, right? And getting to an average portfolio size that is certainly over 100 units is important for scale, for operating efficiency, and from a cash flow perspective, perspective for more self-sufficiency you know, within the portfolio. The large operators, the, the large owner, owner managers, you know, whether they're Forget some of those for-profits that you mentioned yeah. have incredibly efficient systems. As I said, you know they they figured out some formulas and some operating models that allows them to reach a higher level of efficiency. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and that and that's important for the supply side of the equation. For the nonprofits, why we're we doing smaller properties? I think we probably target a lower in, end of that AMI continuum, right? An AMI scale. I would bet like Mercy Housing, we're closer to on average a 30% AMI, 30 to 40% AMI household. The larger ones, the for-profits are probably more in the 50 to 60% AMI range. And you would think, you know, it's still all affordable, but the difference in cash flow when you get to size um, and the difference in the, the supportive services that are needed are very different. So 
our model is, you know, very much a service enriched housing model because we're, you know, intentionally serving extremely low income seniors who are aging in place but need supportive services there. We're serving extremely low income families, single head of household families, and we're trying to make a difference in the education outcomes, the health outcomes, the economic outcomes of those households through reinvesting any cash flow back into resident services and resident programs. And then when you get to the permanent supportive housing portion of the portfolio, a whole nother ballgame in terms of the, the intensity of the services that are needed that need to be funded and the lowest rents, you know, that we're get the lower rents that we're getting, which means again, the self-sufficiency ratio. And if you think of a self-sufficiency right. ratio as how much of the properties programs and services and operations are covered from the cash flows of the property. Mm-hmm. That self-sufficiency ratio is much higher when you're at a, you know, serving 50 to 80% area median income. And certainly when you go above that, when you get down to the 40, 30, 20% area median income households, that self-sufficiency ratio, what the property can cover support is much lower because the level of services needed are much higher. Right. And let's drill down on that again, because it's really mm-hmm. interesting. So you have two parts that you're doing by the self-selection of your business model. One is that there's more smaller properties, maybe in smaller communities, but smaller properties. And then the second is you're self-selecting to a lower income population than, than we probably have or than you need to have. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily call it self-selection, although that is our mission, so we don't shy away from it. Right. But it's also being responsive to the state level and local priorities that are attached to the deep subsidies we need in terms of capital dollars. So whether it's the low-income housing tax credit program or the home and CDBG grants, the way those are administered these days, the cities and or the states are prioritizing serving those dollars going to the lowest in income households. So we often thought that we're self-selecting, but in order to compete for those deep subsidy grants and capital dollars, we have to target our our household restrictions at those lower AMI levels. So so we're serving, we're there serving those needs that the local or state level public sector, the municipalities have prioritized. Whereas others are developing more units but through the, you know, often in the non-competitive space of the 4% tax credits or the private activity bond um, sector, which you can serve higher incomes because there's less competition for that capital. Mm -hmm. So let me ask a question about that. So it's interesting because I think in many states, the prioritization of the 9% tax credit, we're going to have to geek out here a little bit, is going more and more to the nonprofits because they're going to serve the lower end of the spectrum and that gives extra points and therefore everyone's happy to do that. However, are you then being saddled with non-sustainable housing? So what is what does that look like from does the organization then work or not work and how do you make mm-hmm. sure the organization as a business model is sustainable? Yes, yeah, so it's a really important point because you're hitting on sort of a, a what I wouldn't call it a, a, a real challenge that we're seeing emerging and getting worse, which is exactly that point. Because we're being asked to serve that lowest income household, let's say from, you know, and not just chronically homeless, but even households, again, at 30% AMI, let's say, and they need services. And we're not always getting vouchers for those units. We're just, you know, operating them at a lower cost. 
we generally can model those properties to to cover their the cost of operations. But to your point, those households need services in order not just to to remain stably housed, but also eventually to thrive, right? You know, to have better health and education and economic outcomes. And and the services are not being funded in any consistent way by any specific program. What I often point to as a model that we're looking to is what's called the VASH program. It was Veterans VA Supportive Housing. It was a voucher that was created, voucher program maybe 10 years ago, so a rent subsidy program targeting vets, you know, particularly homeless vets. But it, it came not just with the rent subsidy, but with a commitment of funding for from the VA for the supportive services that the veterans needed as well. And I think that model can be expanded within HHS to have service-enriched vouchers that would not only provide the rent subsidy, but also come with a commitment of funding for the services that are so critical to those households. Got it. So let's totally change the subject now. <laughs> and right. let's talk a little bit about Mercy Housing. Let's talk a little bit about you before we wrap up. And Mercy Housing was founded by the Sisters of Mercy, and the founding story matters, and the founding story continues within the heart and soul of the organization and in its governance. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, we have, a you know, Mercy Housing celebrated its 40th anniversary um, in 2022. So yay, Mercy. <laughs> we got through 40 years very successfully. But the legacy, if you go back to the first property, that the Sisters of Mercy acquired their first property in Omaha, Nebraska. It was really a response to a social justice issue, which is that they saw people getting evicted uh, or living in slum conditions or being foreclosed on. And they realized that, you know, they wanted to make a difference in those most vulnerable households and, and communities that needed their support, you know, that needed their uh, their collaboration. But but that's always been part of the Mercy legacy is, you know, the Sisters of Mercy invited other women religious communities, other sisters, the Bon Secours and the Daughters of Charity and others to be part of the solution also. So there was there was always a sense of Mercy Housing of bringing partners to the table. And we still live by that ethos of, you know, take strong partnerships to, to solve these these really intractable housing and social justice issues. Over those 40 years, as I said, you know, we grew both by expanding into new markets. Um, I mentioned the regions that we you know, operate in right now, Northwest, Lakefront, out of Chicago, Southeast. Many of those growths were mergers with regional nonprofits who wanted to scale and have, be, have a bigger impact in their areas. So we've grown through kind of mergers and acquisitions of partner nonprofits. And then we've also grown by expanding into new states where we weren't, didn't have a presence before, but we could make a difference. And, and and real critical to the 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 women the sisters, you know they also created other institutions. You know we think of Mercy Housing in, in, as an institution in that it it's going to be around for a long time. You know it's it's not just a collection of properties. It, it's an organization that has legacy, has you know strong support, and is going to have a, a strong future to grow on. The the sisters also created the healthcare networks systems. Mm-hmm. They created education systems in terms of colleges and other schools. And so Mercy Housing, you know, one of the things that distinguishes us also is those partnerships and collaborations, particularly with the healthcare systems. We will build affordable housing where they're expanding their facilities and so forth. So it's been a really mutually beneficial 
partnership and something that's a little more unique to Mercy Housing that is a result of that legacy of having been founded by women religious communities who create these national institutions and national organizations that are really making a difference, positive impact in their communities. Right. And it's really, so when you talk about women religious and those other organizations, you're talking about Catholic organizations largely, which, mm-hmm. and, and the other thing I find really interesting when you talk about, just to mash up some words here, women religious, social justice, and then I'm going to think of Sister Lillian, and I have a picture of her on my bulletin board behind me. So she was a friend and a colleague, and we got to work together uh, for many years. I think business-minded. So business-minded, social justice, sisters. Talk mm-hmm. about it's, it's So talk about the business-minded and hard-nosed business-mindedness balanced with the social justice that these people bring to the table. I th- again, really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would say that for a social justice organization like Mercy Housing, right, you know, founded with that intent to really be lines in the in the social justice and fighting for racial equity. What was important, uh, and this is that that business mentality that the sisters, you know, would bring to any of their ventures, any of their sponsored ministries, is at the end of the day, if as I'm sure you heard Sister Lillian say often, no margin, no mission. Right. There was a deep understanding that you have to run the business as a business make a profit, right? You know, have a margin because that's how you then have the, the resources to invest in the mission work. It's a very professionally run organization. We probably have one of the most dynamic asset management teams, you know, because we know it's not just about the pipeline, but it's really how do we manage and sustain the portfolio. You know, we bring a very like industry level best practices to our work. We have to run efficiently and effectively with a mind to the future. We're constantly forecasting, you know, out three years and four years so we can see, we can make the strategic decisions today that are going to be, you know, important to sustaining the organization out into the future. Our commitment is to continue to grow, continue to have that housing impact and communities that are where they need it, but also have that strong margin so we can have an impact in the quality of life of our residents and not just this generation, but the next generation that's coming. So Ismail, let's turn to you and your story and how you got into this. Talk a little bit about growing up and then your early career before you got into affordable housing. Sure. So, you know, I think what's important about my youth and and where I grew up in Chicago in the Pilsen Little Village neighborhood, which with a challenging, poor Mexican immigrant community. For me, what I realized is, you know, I had a stable home, which meant I had a place to come home to at night to do my homework, you know, where I could sleep safely and a family, you know, unit. My my family was, we were together, you know, and and, um, I I also went to St. Casimir Parish and school, which was its own institution in the neighborhood, right? You know, an institution of stability where people came together to help each other, right? Through potlucks, 
through fundraisers, you know, and just one-on-one, you know, people in the neighborhood needed help. And the, the, the parish the school was where you often came, you know, so I, so I just saw that as I got older, I realized how did I survive, you know, and, and thrive in that environment? Well, it was having that stable home and having, a, you know, a, a community institution like our church parish that really anchored me and gave me the opportunity then to be the first to go to college and, and what I found, you know, as I got into uh, out of college and, and was working in the corporate sector in telecom is I wasn't getting the satisfaction out of my work. You know, I felt like I was in a way you're working for the company and I wanted more than that. And so I came back to my old neighborhood um, and a, a good friend had started a nonprofit called the Resurrection Project. I ended up leaving my corporate position to come work in the neighborhood. Um, And it was one of those issues of never looking back. So much, so satisfying and gratifying to be able to be in my neighborhood, in that community where I grew up, where my family lived still, where friends and, you know, relatives lived and to be able to, you know, be kind of that positive uh, organization that was creating change, you know, and being there to support and empower, you know, engage residents in kind of what was their, what their solutions are, you know, what they needed, but how do they make it happen? Uh, not, not doing for them, but doing with them. That was really our model. And that's been my, two of my pillars are helping people lead and helping people do for themselves. You know, they, they know there's the solutions that are needed. And the other is, is that, you know, strong sense of empowering local leadership. That's really critical to, to what we're trying to do and building these institutional organizations that are around for a long time that are stable and can be anchors in the community. Before that, how did you get from Telecom, then you go to your community. How did you get from your community and then start moving up the corporate ladder to become the leader that you are today? You know, it's interesting. I I guess I was always looking for the next, not to say best, but an opportunity to make a bigger impact, right? Mm -hmm. So I went from a neighborhoods level community development corporation to moving to uh, Denver. I joined a regional organization, Rocky Mountain Communities, that was now working not just in one neighborhood or one city, but was working in this kind of Southwest region. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I, I took a step up to work at US Bank Community Development Corp, because now I had even you know multi-state investment. I was seeing what US Bank was doing at a national level in investing in affordable housing. But my roots were always in, in neighborhood community development. So after learning as much as I could at, you know, as an as affordable housing equity investor, I came back and came back to Denver as my home and said, I want to be part of making the city of Denver a great place. And that was the opportunity to work at the Denver Housing Authority, you know, where we were really a major player in transformation of the lowest income neighborhoods and communities in the city. And for Mercy Housing, we're trying to be that kind of an active community builder, you know, neighborhood community partner. But now we're in, you know, actively in 10 states, probably 20, you know, plus metro areas. So, you know, I keep looking for where can I have a bigger impact, you know, make more of a difference because this work is so important. And as we've been talking, the need for solutions, you know, and creativity and entrepreneurial entrepreneurship is so critical. So I'm looking this, you know, continuously like where can I have a bigger impact than I am than I have today. And it's interesting because it, everything you've talked about rooted back from your original story growing up, but then also starting in a neighborhood 
trying to make change there, working in the neighborhood of Denver to make change there through mm-hmm. housing. But now yeah. you're running the largest nonprofit group searching for efficiency, searching for growth, balanced with these mission comments. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. For us, the impact that we're having in the community and with our residents is really what we're about. And housing is a means to an end. It, it kind of gives us the platform to do those other things that are really what drives, I know what drives a staff here at Mercy Housing, you know, what motivates them every day mm-hmm. is building the best housing that we can, but it's because that's where our work begins. When we can move a family into their new home, that's where we start impacting their quality of life, their health and education and economic outcomes. And, and that's what drives us here at Mercy Housing. It's wonderful and it's true. Before we wrap up with the last question, we've talked about a whole lot of things across the spectrum of housing affordability and affordable housing. We've only touched all of these things. I'm wondering if you have any kind of final observations or things that we missed in that conversation as we think, as we swoop back up to a 10,000 foot level and think about this whole system. You know, we talked early on about how now affordability is really impacting more and more people, right? You know, and, and we're seeing it up and down the income ladder. What we're also finding is the other institutions, organizations, partners who are trying to impact other parts of people's lives, like education, like health outcomes, like workforce, you know, et cetera. Those partners are also realizing how important housing is to the success of their programs. And so more and more, you know, we are partnering and doing sort of mixed use developments as well, where we can co-locate a childcare center or a health clinic or a workforce center, you know, in our communities and in our properties, because those other partners have also realizing without stable housing, my education program, no matter how good the curriculum is not going to work, right? Without stable housing, all the health clinical, you know, attention I can pay to a a patient is not going to result in the long-term health outcomes I want if that patient doesn't have stable, healthy housing. So we're finding other partners are are joining in and saying, hey, we want, we realize how important housing is. We want to be partner with you and figure out how do we also, you know, help to increase the supply and build good quality housing with supportive services wrapped around it. It's interesting. We started with this part of, with this comment, but it's it's really true. I think the national awareness of housing now is such that also helps those partners to understand the importance of it because it's now part of the everyday discussion and it used to not be. That's right. I agree. Last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business, but maybe getting into the mission oriented real estate business where someone makes a difference through their careers. Yeah. Well, as you, hopefully, uh, as you can tell from my enthusiasm about the subject, this is probably the best career path I could have imagined. And honestly, back 25 or 26 years ago, I couldn't have imagined it. And I think, you know, that's biggest advice I would have for anybody is, you know, if you think you, you're you interested, there are so many ways to get involved, you know, to, to start in a career here it, through design, construction, through financing, you know, being part of that, the production side of housing, but just as much there's the programmatic side, you know, and the management of housing and the programs that are offered there. The important thing, I think, of why people are here at Mercy Housing and at many of the other affordable housing organizations is at the end of the day, there's a mission you know, that's beyond the product. It's really about the impact 
that you're having on the life of residents and on the life of the communities where your housing is situated. And, and that's the motive. If you're motivated to serve people that way, um, you know, and, and be a positive impact um, in your community, then career and affordable housing or an affordable housing organization is going to feel so good and so right. <laughs> I can I can guarantee it. There's careers for people in the real estate business who want to find meaning in the work that they do. That's right. The challenges of creating healthy, vibrant communities for all, and especially for the lowest income, there are no easy solutions. And we need creative thinkers, right? We need people who are passionate about it, but come at it with creativity, you know, and ingenuity because there are no easy answers. But if you're a problem solver, then this is, you know, could be a great career place for you. Totally cool. Ismail, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on the show. This is a great conversation. We've been all over it here. And we'll continue this conversation in person at some point soon, I hope. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.